episode zero zero five. Honestly, to me, business is basically in the most simplistic manner. It's someone's got a problem. You're going to solve that problem for them and you're going to charge to solve that damn problem. That's it. Welcome to the Fail On Podcast, where we explore the hardships and obstacles today's industry leaders face on their journey to the top of their fields through careful insight and thoughtful conversation. By embracing failure, we'll show you how to build momentum without being consumed by the result. Now, please welcome your host, Rob Nunnery. Today, you and I get to learn from none other than Saul Orwell, an entrepreneur and business developer most known for his work as the co-founder of Examine.com. He was recognized as a 2014 game changer by Men's Fitness and profiled by Forbes as a seven-figure entrepreneur. I'll be talking to Saul about how a speaker at his high school taught him to look at business and failure in a very nonchalant way, how every single business that he has ever started has originated from him solving a problem that he had for himself, and how almost anyone can downgrade their current lifestyle to get started and survive in business if they really want it bad enough. And finally, what Saul would do to start a business without any money and without a business idea, and much, much more. But first, if you'd like to stay up to date on all the Fail On Podcast interviews and key takeaways from each guest, Simply go to failon.com and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page. That's failon.com, F-A-I-L-O-N.com. Now, without further ado, Mr. Saul Orwell. Saul, really excited to have you here today, man. Welcome to the Failon Podcast. Man, I'm excited to be on. Thanks for having me. You got it. So just for a little context, we are in Toronto, Canada right now. Your home, you're not your hometown, but your, your current city. I consider my hometown. Okay. I'm an immigrant. I've lived in, I think now, like 11 different cities. Mm. I've lived in seven different countries. So Toronto is my home. And you know I'm from Toronto because I dropped the second T. That's how, that's ah, how yeah. you know I'm legit. <laughs> yeah. That's how you know. Just out of curiosity, because I think we both have traveling in common mm-hmm. as a huge passion. What other countries have you lived so I'm ethically Kashmiri, yeah. what Pakistan and India keep fighting over. So I was born in Pakistan, lived in Saudi Arabia, also lived in Japan, mm-hmm. back to Saudi Arabia. Then I've been all over the States. Yep. I've been in Houston, LA, Phoenix, El Paso, and Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And then there was obviously Toronto, and I was also li- I've lived in Argentina. That's a crazy mishmash in the, in the States. What yes. took you to those random cities? So originally Houston and LA were with my dad. Or with my family, my dad worked for a Saudi petrochemical company. And every time they did a new plant, they had to outsource. So Houston was Halliburton. LA was Kellogg's, which is actually not just a cereal company. There's a separate one that's in, in oil and whatnot. And then afterwards, man, skip a lot of time. I essentially retired when I was in Toronto. To me, money was just a means to an independence. And so I was like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll wander around. We'll gallivant around. And that's when like Phoenix happened. I was married at this time. My ex-wife, she was from El Paso. She was this like white redhead who somehow ended up in El Paso. <laughs> but eventually I did Manhattan, which I think everyone should try if they can. New York's an amazing place to live. I lived in Greenwich, so it was just literally ground zero of everything that was going on there. Sorry. How long were you there? I was there for two years. Okay. But eventually New York wore me out. Wore me out in six months. I was in the East Village. Oh, there we go. Yeah, there yeah. we go. Right? Like it, It's fun. But it's too intense. Yeah. I think there's a reason why so many people in New York are on cocaine because that's the only way you can have enough energy to right. keep going in that crazy place. 100%. And then eventually Toronto called me back and I was going to move to Panama City in Panama, not Florida. 
but the recession hit. I had some friends there. They got crushed by it. And so I just ended up being in Toronto. But I'm glad. It's nice to have roots. It's nice to be able to go to the convenience store guy and be like, yo, I forgot my wallet. Can I have a Coke? Or go to my favorite cookie yeah. place. And this happens all the time. <laughs> I'm like, yo, I forgot my wallet. They're like, of course you did. But there's the cookie anyway. I'm like, yes. That's so, awesome. Yeah. I'm glad to be in one place. Yeah, I think one thing that most people probably don't realize is that Dude, Toronto's got an amazing community of entrepreneurs. Like, oh, for sure, man. I think what really happens is part of it is like the Canadian style. We're a little bit less self-promotional. We're a little bit less self-indulgent, if I even may. And the other thing is like when you think of the Valley or you think of New York or even areas now of Boston and Austin, even Seattle, you think, oh, you know, cooperation, we're going to help each other. But in Toronto, it's almost like little schisms between these different areas where you're just like, I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to kick ass. I'm going to work hard. Like I was an SEO from early 2000s and I had no idea our friend Dev was here in Toronto and he's got 30 employees and he's kicking ass and taking names, right? So I think it's just part of our persona and that we just are more busy spending our head down just trying to acquire clients than being like, hey, man, I'm crushing get, it. Yeah, I got to get in tech crunch in New York <laughs> right. Times or Business Insider or whatever. So I think that kind of leads to that. Got it. So just to get things started and to get a little context about you and your background, there's actually one quote that I have from you. I don't know if you, you probably don't even know it or know uh -oh. where it is or where uh -oh. it came from or what, but you actually said that it was, a, it was one of the defining moments of you and your business life. Mm -hmm. And it was the combination of it's okay to fail plus how easy it is to get started made a switch go off in my brain and made me understand how business can be operated. Do you remember this at all? It sounds vaguely familiar. Sounds okay. like something I would say. Yeah, yeah. So it was actually around two points that you made. One was that you had heard a speaker uh, yes. give a speech about failing three times before you hit it big. Yeah. And this guy was worth, what, like $50 million, I think yeah, you said. Yeah, he was worth quite a bit. No? Yeah, yeah. And then the second point, do you remember the second point? That it's it's easy to start up a business. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. exactly. That you, you saw a guy that incorporated a bunch of different businesses. And you're like, oh man, that's, that's all you got to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's simple. So based on that, can you give a bit more context around the statement and how you came to understand that it's okay to fail? For sure. So of those two points, the first one was basically a dude came to our high school and he basically owned the second largest bagel company in Canada, the Great Canadian Bagel or whatever the hell it's called. And he was like, I did this and I failed and I did this and I failed. And more than anything else, it was his nonchalance to uh, it, yeah. right? Where he was like, meh. Right. And I was like, holy shit, like this guy totally bounced it off. And he didn't seem like some that some like one of those supremely confident kind of guys. You know, it looks a little bit slick and you're like, oh yeah, he's always been a businessman. He was just and I say this with love because that's what he called himself. He was just this random Jewish dude who tried this thing, failed, tried another thing, failed, and the bagels worked for him. And you just like a lot of times people think entrepreneurship is some kind of like, oh, you're born to be a leader. Or you're some kind of amazing person. Not really. Maybe you're a little bit more organized. Maybe you're a little bit more, you know, mean streak or independent streak. But I don't think there's anything specially unique about it. So that's kind of where that mindset hit me. We're like, yeah, and, and it even makes sense, right? Like in real life, and I always try to put myself in someone else's feet or shoes, sorry. If someone comes up to me like, man, I tried this business and it failed, I'm not going to think, haha, you idiot. Right, of course not, yeah. <laughs> Loser, get away, man. Like you might have cooties. No, right? You're like, all right, this guy at least had the cojones to try it. But most people, 
that did fail mm-hmm. would think that you're going to say that, right? Exactly, right? But and, and it's so true for everything, though. It's not just about business, right? You could be dancing in a club. No one's watching. You could be at a concert and dancing around awkwardly. No one's watching you. Unless you're like Elaine Bennis and Seinfeld right. and you're just throwing <laughs> shoulders and thumbs around, right? You're just making a scene. Yeah. Sure. But otherwise, people, like, the, the reality is, if you think about it, you're self-obsessed. I'm self-obsessed. You don't care what someone else is doing. So if they're failing, you don't care. You're like, ah, fuck this guy. Like, I'm busy worrying about myself. I'm busy being selfish about me, which is fine. And I think that realization finally kind of, like, set me free where I'm like, all right. No one cares. And so that was the first point. And the second one is kind of hilarious. I used to be in the domain name industry. And there's this one guy who owns all the best.ca domains. So he owns like travel.ca, sex.ca, home.ca, whatever. And I was asking him how he got it. And so back in the day, and I think this is like 94, 95, the University of British Columbia, UBC, they control the entire .ca domain. And if you wanted a .ca domain, you had to to email them. Oh, sorry, you had to write a letter. So he wrote them a letter saying, hey, I want to buy travel.ca. And they're like, no, 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 you need to be incorporated as a business first. And he's like, sure, okay. So he writes them, he calls the business, he writes them a letter. He's like, they're like, no, 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 you need to be travel.ca to get travel.ca. So he's like, all right. <laughs> so he registered travel.ca, he sent it and he got it. And they registered, I think, like 56 different other businesses to do it. And again- Charging him or- Sorry? Selling it to him or what was well, it? Oh, back in the day, it was domains were free, right? So okay. back in the day, .coms were free. Back in the day, .ca, so they're all basically they just free. owned it, basically. So the the university basically administered it. Got it. So you got had it. to, I guess, apply to say, hey, I've got a business called travel.ca. This is why I need travel.ca. So you just created all these businesses. And again, it's the nonchalance to it. And I'm like, oh, wasn't it a headache? He's like, why would it be a headache? And I'm like, <laughs> I have literally no answer for you. Because in Canada, we don't have LLCs. We have two levels of corporations. And he's like, yeah, I just incorporated it. And that's it. And once a year, I have to file my taxes. But because we was making no income at the time, it was just a loss, loss. And the domains were free at the time. So literally, he didn't have to even file paperwork. I was like, oh. I'm like, what about the legal stuff? He's like, what legal stuff? I own the company 100%. And that's all there is to it. I'm like, oh, shit. It's just one of those things where... Now, especially entrepreneurship, right? It always seems so daunting. It always seems so scary. And there are parts that are a headache, right? HR can be a headache. Legal can be a headache. But eventually you learn like the actual business creation part is like stupid easy. It's like 300 bucks or something. And you don't even need to, I think back in the day it was maybe a bit more expensive because you had to go through a lawyer. Now you can just use these online services, right? <laughs> exactly. Even Stripe is in the process of kind of they're in a beta test for something called Stripe Atlas, which basically creates your entire business and hosting and all that stuff all through Stripe and done. Like you just pay them an incredibly low amount and they do it all for you. So it's just one of those things where I think people's nonchalance to what actually stresses them out, that's what kind of got me over those humps. Mm. So what kind of, I think it's an amazing point actually, because people in their heads, you know, they build up such a fear and they they make things bigger than life almost. Absolutely. Right? You think about, oh, I'm going to go into business and be an entrepreneur, like, that's going to be so incredibly difficult. I'm going to lose $50,000 before I make a dollar. 100%. And it doesn't have to be like that. So what kind of advice would you give to somebody that maybe has that mindset right now? Mm-hmm. Honestly, to me, business is basically, in the most simplistic manner, it's someone's got a problem, you're going to solve that problem for them, and you're going to charge to solve that damn problem. That's it. So this idea of like 50,000, people think they need this amazing logo and they need to have all this design. And they look at Apple and they're like, oh, look how much headaches or design efforts they put in. I mean, Apple is a company that's worth, what, $700 billion or something? If you look at Microsoft's logo, like, what is that logo? If you look at Facebook's logo, 
what is that logo, right? None of the logos don't matter. I mean, okay, in the, in the big picture and eventually they do matter and brand matters. But when you're starting a business, people care so much about appearances. It reminds me of like the Roman story of when the Romans sacrificed meat, they would give them the gods, the skin and bones. And as the story goes, it was basically they tricked the gods. The first time they did it, they put the meat there and it made it look unappealing and they put the skin and bones there and they just covered it up and it made it look really nice. Yeah. And the gods picked what looked really nice <laughs> even though the actual meat was in the other pile. And it's the same kind of logic here, right? People think they need to have this amazing presentation and these nice chairs and this office and all this stuff, but none of it's needed. All you need to do is figure out what the problem is and solve it. And especially nowadays with stuff like 3D printing and, and even just globalism itself and ability to access manufacturing everywhere and on-demand stuff, writing books whenever you want. Honestly, man, it's just one of those things like go, don't worry. Even honestly, like the first few clients might not be the best thing to do, but don't even worry about incorporating your business or whatever. Just do it as a sole proprietorship. And then if it makes sense, spend the money on being like, oh, I'm going to make this into a biz or I'm going to grow it. So yeah, that's my thought process there. So if let's strip you of all businesses, mm -hmm. experiences, mm -hmm. et cetera, right. and you're starting from scratch today, 100%. how are you starting? So every business I've done has been through my own frustration. So I've had three that have hit seven figures. Examine.com is arguably worth quite a bit more now. And I've had massive failures. And every single one has been from a point of self-interest and selfishness where I'm like, this is annoying me. I'm going to solve it. So honestly, if I was stripped of everything, I would likely take maybe a week or a month to figure out what the hell is annoying me on my day to day. It might be my watch is uncomfortable. It might be my shirts don't fit well. It might be these shoes are uncomfortable. It might be that online, you know, I wish I had a better way to save my passwords or whatever, whatever. And eventually, whatever that thing was that was most frustrating, that almost rattled in my brain the most, that's what I would approach. And then I can, do you want me to go further? Or is that enough to, well, to no, get I gonna, started? I was just going to ask, how do you know whether it's also a problem for others? So that's where you just start talking to your friends, right? Like people think that market research, you have to hire Nielsen or whatever to do. Man, your friends are the most, I would argue, or likely are the most similar to you. So if you go to them and like, hey man, are you annoyed by your shoes? Like let's say we're talking about running shoes, right? Are you annoyed by your shoes that they're too bulky? And someone else is like, yeah, man, me too. And someone else is like, yeah, man, me too. You're like, okay, maybe there's something here. Right, And that's where you can go get manufactured five shoes, 10 shoes. And I wouldn't necessarily say it's the cheapest thing in the world, but you're not plunking down 50,000, right? You're plunking down 500 bucks. You're plunking down maybe 1,000. Maybe it's expensive per shoe just to get it started. But you can be like, okay, let's try this out. And especially now with so much outsourcing available with so much uh, executive assistance available and virtual assistance. You don't even need to do all that research yourself, right? Like Belay Solutions, which is formerly known as EA Help, their EAs are like 40 bucks an hour. But their EAs are really good, right? You hire them, you spend even 10 hours of them doing research is just 400 bucks, which in the grand scheme of things is not that much money, right? You can go get a job somewhere and make that $400 to make it back. So that'd be kind of my first step is just figuring out what's frustrating me and that would then lead towards whatever it is that I'm going to solve next. How do you examine risk in terms of like, let's say you're looking at that, right? right. And you're looking at spending that $400. Uh -huh. How do you gauge whether that's a good investment, a bad investment, and are you, are you more of a risk-averse person? or i got to be honest, I don't really know. <laughs> sure. It's, I okay. mean, it's one of those things where, I mean, okay, so when I got started, I started off on a free website. I somehow got a free domain. My parents used to give me $10 a month allowance, so I found a web host that, would, that charged less than $10 a month. So I've always been risk-averse to the sense of as long as I have liquidity, I'm going to go for it. That's my only measure of 
is it worth it or not? So in terms of, you know, should I spend the $400 on this or that? I I mean, it's too mm, specific per situation, right? Like if we're talking about shoes, then you may need to spend a little bit more on design because design matters. And if I'm talking about some kind of online solution that's bugging me, then design matters less and the technical product may matter more, right? Then programming might matter more. So I don't really have a good answer for that. Honestly, a lot of it is intuitive. That's where experience comes into play. But I'm a big believer in being relatively cash flow positive at all times. I'm not a believer in taking in thinking, okay, I'm making $100,000 a month, I'm going to now spend 600000 because like the VC life is not for me. If it's free, that's cool. It's definitely for some people, but that's not that's not the way I approach business. Sure. Bootstrap for life, right? For sure, for me. <laughs> for sure. So take us back to, on this whole note of kind of getting started in business, take us back to the first time that somebody actually gave you dollars, mm-hmm. gave you money in mm-hmm. exchange for something that you provided, a product or service. Right. So I was making ad money from through networks and all that. But the one that was the most important was this guy. So I had a, a gaming site and I had tried doing very CPA stuff, cost per action, right? Like so someone downloads or buys or whatever and that all failed for me. So this guy came to me and he had a virtual currency website. And he's like, hey, man, I want to pay you $500 a month for your website. And I was like, holy shit. Like, I was making maybe 200 at this time. I'm like, 500 giddy up. Let's do this. <laughs> so I'm like, sure. And then he says, you know what? I'll also pay you 10% commission. And I'm like, I try to dissuade him. I'm like, because in my head, I'm like, shit, he's going to pay me 500 He's going to see he's getting no sales. <laughs> and he's going to tell me to get lost. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, there's going to be this one. Or I think we had like three months I, I finagled out of him. But incidentally, that 10% made more than the $500. Right. And so it was that experience of not just that he gave me 500 bucks, but that my traffic was converting, which just started leading me away from pure advertising and more towards what does my audience want and let's sell it to them. Because that'll make me like at the time, the site was making maybe $150 a month off a generic ad network. He boosted it to 500 and then eventually went to 900, I think, including the 10% and all that. And then it just went even higher and higher and higher. So that was that one moment where I was like, holy shit, targeted traffic matters a lot. And what was, you said it's a gaming site. What exactly yeah. was was the site? Not necessarily the domain, but For what sure. did the site do? For sure. So back in the day, so you may have heard of World of Warcraft. Just to give you a scale, World of Warcraft came out in 2003. Before World of Warcraft, the biggest one in North America was a game called EverQuest. It peaked at, I think, 450,000 players. So this is basically an online virtual world. People are paying, I think, 15 or $20 a month to explore. And like, If you think of games like Zelda or Baldur's Gate or whatever, imagine that in an online situation. This must have been one of the earlier... Yeah, so Ultima Online was like the original one. And this is like, I think came out in 95. EverQuest, I think it was like 97, 98. It peaked in like 2001, 2002, which is around this time that when all this happened. But just to give you a scale, EverQuest was at 450,000. World of Warcraft peaked at 14.5 million people. Sure. So it wasn't even <laughs> like remotely comparable, right? It just annihilated everyone everywhere. So what happened in, those, in these virtual worlds, which is like real world, you know, let's say there's a Sword of Doom. And you have to do something for 50 hours to get the sort of doom. You're a busy professional. You're like, I don't got 50 hours. <laughs> right. So I come to you and I say, hey, I'll sell you a sort of doom for $500. And you do the math in your head. You're like, should I spend 50 hours or just 10 bucks an hour? Just pay this dude 500 bucks. Done. Shut up and take my money. And what we would do then is go to these other kids who are playing 40 hours a week anyway and who've way past that level. And we're like, hey, man, we'll pay you 20 bucks for your 10 Swords of Dooms. And in their mind, their math is, yeah, now I don't have to pay for my video game this month because they're all kids anyway. They can't really afford to. (laughs) And they're like, absolute shut up and take my Sword of Doom. 
So that was it. The arbitrage opportunity was massive. And the reason I mentioned World of Warcraft is when it came, it was so big that the margins got eliminated. So yeah, that's how that happened. Did you always grow up kind of, you know, you hear a lot of people, I was a born entrepreneur, I was yeah. selling lemonade and cookies in your case as a kid. Like, did you, was that you as a kid or did you come to entrepreneurship later in life? Not even remotely. So I grew up mostly in Saudi Arabia and Japan. There was no opportunities for, for me to sell lemonade or cookies <laughs> on the street regardless of my desire. Right. But no, I never had that. My biggest thing has always been independence. So, for example, I was not legally born to or well. I changed my full name. The idea that someone else got to choose my name, regardless of who it was, <laughs> is absolutely absurd. So really, it was more of a, of independence that I don't like. And you, know, you heard me joke, don't tell me what to do. The idea of anyone else telling me what to do is completely unacceptable to me. And so that's kind of what got me into entrepreneurship. Gotcha. And what was the actual first venture that you got into? Was it the gaming site? So the first actual one I did was a programming website. So I was a, a fat, shy nerd back in the day. The internet was my refuge. And so I had a programming website. I think it peaked a couple of thousand visitors a day. But I then got into online gaming, I think, in 98. And in 99 is when I tell people, oh, that's when I be started my first business. Because that's when it became serious. So that was the first one to hit seven figures through these, not only just virtual currency, but also virtual guides. Right? Like, you, again, you're like, you're in this virtual world. You don't know what to do. So we'd sell you a $50 guide or whatever, being like, hey, this is how you level up whatever volcano or stuff yeah incidentally i never actually played these games myself <laughs> i just realized what the opportunity was there yeah you just saw how engaging it was for the yeah, community like I, I played it so when i came so i came from Saudi arabia to houston and this is before there was any internet in the middle east and i went to a latino middle school and i had massive culture shock like massive like just just my mind was blown by everything and so online games were my refuge and so that's how I originally started my first online gaming site was based on the one game I was in. And then people who used to play that game, they went to other games. And then they started talking about this and they started making fun of people who were spending money to buy gear, as they called it. And I was like, why would you like, why would you not want to just get in on this? So that's kind of how it led me into that area. Got it. So we talked a little bit earlier about how, how intimidating and almost like bigger than life entrepreneurship can be. Mm -hmm. Did you have that same like syndrome going into entrepreneurship? Did you think it was like this big gigantic thing that you could, that's going to be really hard to tackle or did you just kind of lean into it? So I never really, to me, there was almost two worlds. There was like, you know, Bill Gates and Buffett who ran giant companies and all that kind of stuff. To me, what I was doing was never in my mind, a level of entrepreneurship. Now, ex post facto, we could look at it and we're like, yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. But at the time I was just like, I'm just, doodling around and eventually i'm like okay i need someone else to help me okay i need another person to help me i need another person so it was almost like i stumbled upon it but at the back of my head i know that if i can do it pretty much anyone else can do it you know there's nothing special about it i mean i might not be able to and not might not be i likely will not be able to do a team of like 100 people right that's a different kind of mindset different kind of skill approach. set yeah exactly right so entrepreneurship to people is oftentimes oh you got to make this billion dollar unicorn and all that stuff but and it kind of fell out of favor to have these lifestyle businesses but family businesses tended to be lifestyle businesses right you woke up you worked nine to five you were a butcher or a carpenter or framer or whatever the hell and then you went home right so i think that mindset's kind of coming back and that was my mindset i'm like i'm just gonna do this i'm gonna make some money i'm gonna be able to do whatever the hell i want so yeah i kind of just stumbled into it right there. did you have a job while you were getting started or? no I've, I've never had a job i went to university on a full scholarship i went uh, for computer engineering okay i lost the first semester because you have to keep an 80 percent average i was in the 60s but by then already that stuff was rolling 
Okay, so, I, so like so my business in was, college, you already you're already making money doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Side so stuff. the only reason I went to university is my parents, being the stalwart immigrants they are, is either you become an engineer or you become a doctor. And I was like, whew, doctor is a lot more of a commitment. Let me just get my engineering degree so they leave me alone. Incidentally, my computer engineering degree actually did not do anything for me as an entrepreneur, including the fact that I can program and all that. It did nothing for me. It taught me how to be an adult, which is a different social side to it. But educationally, it never actually taught me there. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> no, it makes sense. So you started you started business early, in in college mm-hmm. or even before. Before, yeah. Okay, when I was just high school. in high school. So, did you run into like any massive failures that just oh, yeah, crashed and burned? Let's let's hear about it. So the worst one ever was I was working with another company, I was in Argentina at this time. And I was using them basically for my payment processing and they were a data partner. I've been working with them for like five, six years. So I felt pretty comfortable. And they basically disappeared on me and they took, I think it was like a quarter of a million dollars with them. And so I'm stuck in Argentina. I haven't been back to Toronto for a while. I'm suddenly now in the hole of like 200,000, I think I was in the hole. And I wouldn't say I was reckless with money, but I was a little bit naive with money at that time. And so I had to take a loan shark loan to cover what was my existing expenses. So that loan was $100,000, which is not a big deal. What, what rate? <laughs> but <laughs> it cost me $180,000 oh, to pay it off. God. That hurt. And so since then, I've become even more anal about me being in charge. So examine.com, right? Like, for example. So we're pretty well established. We're like 70,000 visitors a day. I have a co-founder in it. I have a guy who runs it. The guy who runs it, everyone thinks he owns it, but I own the company. Now, maybe once a year do I ever override Kamal, who runs it, because obviously I hired him because I think he can do the damn job. But that also made me even more, in a way, double down on being independent, whereas I'm like, I can't afford to have anyone else screw me or put me in a position where I'm screwed. And just to go back to that, so after, like, you know, it was a battle, and I was able to battle through it. Thankfully, it's been a while now since that happened. But, like, one of the habits I built was... At that time, I didn't know if my debit card would, sorry, my credit card would pass muster. So at the time, like I had one, I think I had two credit cards and I actually picked up a third. I stretched it almost all the way to its 10,000 limit. I think I had like 9,000 at its peak before finally it all started like, you know, the inertia of it all moved and the, and the revenue started coming direct to me. But I now had this habit where whenever I pay anything with credit, I have to wait until I see the word approved. Even though now my credit <laughs> limit is just like through the roof, right? I could buy like 50,000 cookies right there and yeah. I'd still be okay. <laughs> buying one cookie and I'm like, is it approved? Is it approved? So it was really touch and go. But my confidence was that even now, I've met all these people. I know in my worst case, I could get a good job. I could go to people I know and be like, listen, I'm in a bind. I fucked up, whatever. This is the honest truth. You know what I'm good at. I want to work with you for six months or 12 months. Hire me. I'll kick ass. You know I can kick ass just because I need this reprieve. So I was like, I was stressed, but I was never like batshit stressed. Like I slept fine and all that kind of stuff because I knew I had through my network and through my work, I built up a safety net that no matter how bad things got, I could still get a job. And I think that's one of like the, the hidden benefits of entrepreneurship is if I was in a situation where a friend of mine who I had seen his work or her work and I knew they did good work and for whatever reason they screwed up and they needed money or they needed a job or contracting job, I'd be much more open to it because I'm like, I know you know your stuff. I know you also know the headaches of being an entrepreneur. You're not going to give me random lip or try to get in stupid fights over little little things that don't matter. So yeah, that was my, my biggest colossal blunder of all was not having control of the payment under my name. And I think on that note that you're just talking about, oftentimes, I think the worst case scenario 
is not as bad as most people think it is. Like when they think about starting a business, they're like, they're so scared of the failure and the fear of it that they think that if it doesn't work, their life's over, right? They're going to be a box on the side of the street. When in fact, that's not even remotely true. Funny, I was having this conversation about a year ago. I was in New York and I was hanging out with Mark Manson, Mark Fisher, and Gregory O'Gallagher. Gregory O'Gallagher is a keynote body in fitness, well-known. And we were talking about this where a lot of entrepreneurs started from a relatively affluent position. Mm. Part of it was because they knew that if they failed, they had a safety net. But the reality of it is today, especially like the, this gets into even political side, but society in general provides for you if you screw up, right? It's relative, like most people from my experience, and, and I say this because there's a shelter right literally next door where I live, people who are homeless tend to have other issues than just I ran out of money right? At least in Canada. The States is a little bit of a different beast. So it's one of those things where no matter how bad things go, especially if you have parents, if you have friends, like my parents are always being like, yo, come just even stay over one night. And I'm like, no, thank you. (laughs) Worst case, they've been trying forever. I'm just like, oh, hells no. I mean, I left when I was 18 and I'm never coming back. I've been short visits, sure, but not. But they're in Toronto? They're just in Mississauga, like an hour away. But it's just one of those things where even if you screw up, even if you're penniless, you can go to your parents. You can crash at your friend's place. You can do little random things to generate some revenue. Like the the idea of people is, is like either you're making ten thousand a month or you're making negative five thousand a month. You can be making a thousand dollars a month, which is not a lot of money, and you can scrape by. You can you can have five roommates and maybe not live in downtown and maybe have to walk a bit more than you want or not Uber or go enjoy whatever it is that you enjoy. But eventually that stuff can come back. And, and I experienced it. Like I said, I was in this massive debt. I mean, the credit card alone was, I, th- I think it was 30 and 20. And then this, the third one was 10. So I was almost 60,000 in credit card debt, plus the loan shark loan and all that stuff. Still managed, right? I mean, I had to downgrade. I didn't live in a great, in a great location. I was in a studio. But you can make it work. Were you in a nice place prior to that? Because I think it's, it's tough for some people to swallow when they go from let's say a good corporate job making uh-huh. 100, 150K a year yeah. to putting themselves at risk. Maybe they have a family as well, right? Putting themselves at risk saying, I want to be an entrepreneur, but this security. Yeah, for sure. So there's two things. One, I didn't really live in a much nicer place before. I don't have fancy tastes. Part of it though is I'm also an immigrant. I mean, I still remember going to Pakistan and my parents would sleep on the bed and well, I have three siblings, but one of them is much younger. So my older brother, my older sister, and I were sleeping basically on this little mattress on the floor and cockroaches would be like chilling around us, right? So it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, if I survive that, I can survive pretty much anything. Like I like grimy or, or even a little bit gritty. In regards to people who have a good job, especially if they have a family, I think the other problem, not the problem, but people have this conception that you have to either do everything or nothing. But for example, another podcast, Side Hustle, right? Great podcast, same thing, right? The idea is that you don't have to go all in. You can start something on the side, right? If I'm doing, uh, uh, let's say, sofas, I'm like, sofas suck. I'm going to make an awesome sofa. You don't need to be selling a thousand sofas a month or a year or whatever. You can be like, okay, hey, you there, you know, I'm going to be making a custom sofa. Is there something you really wish was in the sofa? And they're like, yeah, this. And you're like, okay. I'll make you this sofa, I'll charge you $2,000. And then, you know, I'll monogram your name or something. Like, there's always little opportunities where you don't need to go 100%. And there's this weird mindset that all these people have that it's either everything or nothing. Whereas me, I mean, I like leisurely live at like a 70, 80%. I'm never too exerted. 
never too stressed out, never as rich as I could be, <laughs> but that's okay. But you're happy. That's an acceptable downside of being able to just do whatever I want. Come here at three o'clock and not be like, oh man, you know. Oh man, what's going on uh, at the office? Yeah, I have a client call or I need to talk to somebody or this. I'm like, oh, whatever. So it, it's an interesting point you just brought up because I have this conversation actually quite often with mm-hmm. different with different entrepreneurs and people that have been through it already where, you know, you have the one camp that says what you just said is that, you know, side hustle mm-hmm. is, is the way to go. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go all in on something. And I have other people that are 100% adamant that burning the ships is the right thing because mm-hmm. your back's against the wall. There's higher pressure. Yes. And it, some for some people, it's the, it lights a fire in their ass that it's the only way they'll make it work. For sure. So I think it really depends on the person. What's your take on it? I honestly think the latter is a little bit self-indulgent. I think just because something works for you doesn't mean it works for someone else. So when I say do a side hustle, I'm not saying don't not do a side hustle, but I'm saying if you're stressed out or if you want to do something, if you have an itch, you can do a little bit. I, I think there's, especially on the internet, right? Like we live in a in a world of extremes where either you for something or you're against something, right? Like even to invoke Colbert, he was like, if you're not with us, you're against us. And we're talking about, he's talking about like pie. And he's like, if you don't like apple pie, you're against <laughs> apple pie. You're like, well, maybe I'm indifferent. He's like, no, you're against it. So it's one of those things where I think people are a little bit too quick to be like, no, it's either this way or go fuck yourself, right? I don't know if I'm allowed to swear or not, but it's already oh, too happened. Too late now. It's happened. <laughs> no, we'll get a beep good. or whatnot. But it's one of those things where like, maybe you need to calm down a little bit. Maybe it works for some people for sure. You know, some people love procrastinating. They love deadlines. But for other people, there's a little bit of the consideration. Are you, especially if you have family, you can't be like, oh, $100,000 job, I'm going to sh- burn the ship and then now I'm going to go do something else. Because to me, if someone fails because they did that ship burning stuff, that's kind of on you. Because you were the one who made it seem like it's very attainable. The reality is entrepreneurship is full of failure. In general, you are more likely to fail than you won't. If you win, that's great. If you're successful, that's great. But I know a lot of entrepreneurs who've done, and I've been around for a long time. I know a lot of people who tried it, who tried it, tried it, and then eventually became employees. And not that they didn't even want to be Like, I know this one guy. His website gets like a, a million and a half visitors a month. He's very well known. You know, he's done really well. I think he's got a New York Times bestseller. And he's like, you know what? If someone came to me and gave me a really good job, I'd take it. I'm like, why? Because to me, that's crazy, right? To me as well, yeah. And he's like, because I want to be in something bigger than me. And I know what I'm good at, and I would just focus on that. I'm like, that makes complete sense. And this is a guy by every metric. You look at him by his social media following Not need or to work whatever. for anybody. <laughs> you could pretty much stop working, and his website would just churn in money. But maybe that's not enough, right? So I think that this burning ships is actually irresponsible is the word I would take. I hope someone's listening to this. That is burn ships. I'm like, you're being irresponsible because you are impacting other people's lives. This is not just you building up your brand or rah-rah. People will listen to you. And if people listen to you and it destroys their lives, maybe you need to reconsider what you're doing. Ooh, that got dark a little bit. <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> hey, where it went, it's fine. <laughs> No, but on the point, it's actually funny because Jason Gaynor and I, we're having a similar conversation just talking about in terms of entrepreneurship's not for everybody. Oh, 100%. But we were talking about a guy he knows. It might actually even be the same guy. I don't know. But it was a guy, I, I don't, might not be, but it was a guy that had like a five, six million dollar exit mm-hmm. and then wanted to get a job. Mm-hmm. He didn't need to, right? But he totally could see it. But he wanted to go work at Facebook. I think uh, it was. I think interesting. It, I think it was what it was. But... And the point was that at that point, you can you can basically have employment on your own terms. Yeah, you can kind of name your price. You can name where you're going to work from. If you want to work for remote, if you want to, what days you want to work. So at that point, you can kind of write your own ticket. But 100%. like you said earlier, he wanted to be part of something bigger. 100%. And he feels that Facebook's changing the world yeah. with what they're doing. I think there's this weird obsession 
of entrepreneurship these days. Like, it's cool. It's very trendy these it's days. It's super trendy. And yeah. the other thing is a lot of people are not even entrepreneurs. They're freelancers. And there's a different beast in being a freelancer, which is fine, contractor, freelancer, and being an entrepreneur. Because entrepreneur, you have responsibility. I was actually just talking to Dev about this. I'm like, the biggest thing that I wouldn't say spooked me, but makes me embrace, in a way, entrepreneurship is there are like 50 people in this world that rely on me for their livelihood. Not just employees, but their partners and spouses and their children and even their parents. And that is a humbling thought if you really, really think about it, that if you screw up, they're all in trouble. And, and not that necessarily they won't find a job or whatever, but there's the stress of having to find a job or I have to move or I have to do this. So like entrepreneurship is, people think it's a game. It's something to, like a mechanic to figure out, but it's a lot more more than just that. It's pressure. It can be serious pressure. I mean, again, it depends on how you set it up and how you act on it yeah. and whatnot. It can be absolute pre- It is pressure, 100%. In your case, you're not involved in the day-to-day really with examine.com? Not at all. Okay. No. So do you still feel that pressure with that company, even though you're kind of hands-off on it now? Absolutely. If anything, in a way, I feel even more pressure Yeah. because by removing myself, when I was involved, I could at least, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Hey, you there, you there. When I'm not involved, I'm trusting my people not to screw up. And I'm trusting the guy I chose not to screw up. So now it's, at least if it's on me, I can be like, mea culpa, I made a mistake, all that kind of stuff. But if Kamal screws up, now it's just like, oh, not only did Kamal screw up, but now I have to apologize for the fact that I put Kamal in the position to screw up and affect everyone else, right? So there is there is that, it's a different kind of pressure. It's not like I wake up and I'm like, shit, I got to get down at 9 a.m. or 8 a.m. and see what's going on and make sure we're on top of the latest things. I don't need to worry about that. When we put, I think we email twice a week. I have no idea what's coming out before it comes out. Like, I don't even know what's happening. That's awesome. That's freeing. And in a way, it also lets me step back and be like, hey, what about this? What about this? So today, like, I was like, hey, you know, all this nutrition news is coming out. Why don't we do a special one for journalists? Because they need this this information. So it also helps me in a way be better. But absolutely, man. At the end of the day, still, no matter what happens, it's on me. Right. And which is both good and bad. You get the glory and you also get the shit end of the stick when, when things go bad. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. So you're not involved in the day to day, really, except here and there. But what are you spending most of your time on these days? So this year, I'm all about like, okay, what goal do I want to do every year? And there's always like a few skills I want to learn. So like last year, I want to get better at public speaking. So I spoke 26 different times. I want to do scuba diving. So I just went and did it. So this year in a professional capacity is to become a better writer. And so I got into like talking about entrepreneurship about year and a half ago. And my entire stick was like, I'm not going to do courses and I hate coaching and I hate consulting, which is funny because the more I tell people that I hate coaching, the more and more people they literally want you, they are want you begging to be me being like, please, what can I do? <laughs> of course, of course. Send you cookies, I'll do this and I'll do that, which is all nice. But to me, the moment you take money from something, it becomes a responsibility. Right now it's an outlet. Like I can write two, two times a month. I can write about whatever the hell I want and no one can be like, what are you writing this for? How does this help me or what's going on, right? My last book, I just even posted on Wednesday. I've already for, oh, it's about why I don't do social media. Now, is this an entrepreneurship thing to it? Yes, but it's more towards productivity, right? More towards lifestyle. Why I don't do Snapchat and all that kind of stuff. I can do whatever I want. So that kind of takes up most of my time. But the other interesting thing is, Derek Sivers said this, who's one of the few guys like I love he's awesome, listening dude. to and yeah. reading to. And, and even best of all, he's like super accessible. You send him an email, he'll reply. He said how... Somebody emailed him and said, you know, I'm really sorry. I know you're really busy, but this, this, this. And Derek was like, why should I be busy? I'm the boss. If I'm busy, I don't have time to think. And that's kind of me. When people say, are you involved day-to-day with examine.com? No. But because I have downtime, because I have time to read, because I have time to think, I can be like, what about this? 
what about this, right? So for example, today, when I said we should have our own specific journalist email where we only give them the latest nutrition news, we know maybe like 40 or 50 journalists, right? We get in mainstream media maybe once a week. But it makes sense that if we are emailing journalists every week or every other week and saying these are the latest studies, it makes sense that they'll come to us when they need quotes, when they need more information on it. It makes sense that they'll trust us more. I wouldn't have had the time to mull this over if I was busy all the time. So it's one of those things where I'm busy, but I'm not busy at the same time, if it makes sense, because that lack of busyness lets me explore, lets me read. Like a lot of people, they give a lot of lip service to reading. They give a lot of lip service to learning. Right? They're like, oh, I love learning. I, you know, you got to develop yourself. You got to invest in yourself. That's awesome. But how many people actually do anything with it? Right? You go to these conferences and you, you write all these notes and books and whatever. You're motivated. And you come back and what do you do with it? Yeah, like exactly. When I talk, one of my rules is don't take any notes. Yeah. Because the point here is to at least absorb and think over what I'm saying. So it kind of goes back to that where even if I start something new, I'm definitely setting aside time always to read and not just read like business things or thing. I'm talking about like read, like the most bizarre, interesting article I read recently and someone sent this to me was, how do you define a whole? <laughs> and I was like, that makes no sense, but it yeah. makes so much sense. <laughs> but it's one of those things, right? Where if you, in a way, and maybe a bit too large of a word here, but if you paradigm shift your mindset and your thinking, suddenly all these other opportunities open up that you would have never considered before. So yeah, that's what I that's what I do with my time. I just ponder, I philosophize in my own head. No, but it's it's a really interesting point, right? Because on the point of busyness, this is something I talked about mm-hmm. recently, actually, with another friend, is that people are so busy in the day to day, they go to their job, they go to, or they run a business and they, they never take the time for themselves nope. to really figure out who they are. Exactly. Right. Like you seem to really know who you are. So, you know, it's funny you say this because I love Facebook. I post maybe once a day, Max. I love posting whatever's in my mind on Facebook. This is my random thought of the day, what's going on. And it all ties together where by having downtime, I get to think, in a way, ridiculous things. Like, so for example, I've posted zero pictures ever of my dog. I posted one picture ever of my girlfriend. And I'm like, okay, you know, maybe I'll post another picture of her just because it's been like over a year or something. And so that picture that I posted of her, it's like, it got like five, 600 likes or some ridiculous number. And just out of curiosity, and I love going back to old posts just to see what I was thinking, what was going on in my mind. I'm looking at it and I'm reading through it. And I'm looking at these comments and they're all just like, oh, she's too good for you. Or like, don't screw this. And I was like... <laughs> Who the hell are you, first of all, to tell me she's too good for me? I'm too good for her, first of all, let's be honest. No, but second of all, I was like, you don't know her. What is this phrase? So now it's bubbling in my head being like, these interactions are always interesting to me, right? Where like, okay, what does it mean that she's too good for you? Like, is it because she's attractive? Are you implying I'm not attractive? Are you implying only attractiveness matters? And so, okay, this is the one thought process, right? So now I'll post this on Facebook and a conversation will ensue and discussion will happen. But what's amazing about this is on like, you know, people, and I kind of hate this phrase, but personal brand stuff. My personal brand is super solid with my audience because of this. And if we go back to if I wanted to sell coaching, if I wanted to sell consulting, I make jokes about $999 ebook. And I've legitimately had maybe a dozen people email me saying, I want to buy this book. Let me know when it comes out. And this is an obvious joke. I can't imagine how many would actually buy it. Right? So it's that kind of stuff. By having downtime, I get to think. By thinking, I strategically help my business. But I also have these random thoughts. I expose these random thoughts to my audience. And it makes my audience love me even more. And so that's kind of how it all intertwines overall kind of like in the big picture right there. So in my head, I'm kind of getting almost like a contradicting thing though. Because earlier you said that you know, if you're not for apple pie or against it, like, you know, that you believed in like these really polarizing statements almost, mm-hmm. or, or that you didn't believe you did. in. Yes, correct. Correct. And, but I feel like 
everything like I feel like you have such a strong voice on Facebook mm-hmm. that it is kind of polarizing. So it can become polarizing absolutely. And there's always people who will obsess over the exceptions. But when I say polarizing statements, I mean like everyone should be an entrepreneur or like something that's very, and I'm very honest that when I post something, this is my thought process. And I say, these are my opinions. This is not like when someone says everyone should be an entrepreneur, they're treating it like a fact. They're not saying this is my opinion. When I say, you know, I think if you're getting a tribal tattoo in 2017, you should reconsider your (laughs) tattoo strategy. I'm being honest. This is my thought thought process yeah yeah right and so someone else like a, a friend of mine he posted a tribal tattoo and i said you do you boo <laughs> like it's fine like it's it's right, also right, meant right. to be an expression of you don't have to agree with me i don't have to agree with you but we don't have to hate each other for also at the same time which which builds this fun back and forth like, i've also found that when people do you know when they put an opinion out there let's say a little bit unpopular and someone disagrees with it they immediately backpedal they immediately like oh i'm sorry i don't backpedal because I'm like, listen, just because there's an exception doesn't mean the monstrosity of the entire generalization is suddenly untrue, right? People love making these random exceptions, right? If I, I don't remember what it was, but someone was like, oh, I was like, oh, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of, if you don't have celiac disease, you shouldn't be afraid of bread. Someone was like, yeah, well, I've got Hashimoto's disease. And what? I'm like, dude, obviously, if you've got Hashimoto's disease, it's different. I'm not going to be right. like, oh, don't eat peanuts because someone's got a peanut allergy. It's one of those things. Like, there's an absolutism, and then there's like, this is a, an opinion not something that is 100% always true and you should do this. Yeah. Do you do you think people actually aren't opinionated enough and like stand by their feelings and thoughts? I think they're opinionated. They don't express them. So I, I talk about a lot about this. You know, people talk about, oh, I'm going to be like social media is to be vulnerable. I don't want to sound like an asshole. Inevitably, that means I'm going to sound like an <laughs> yeah, asshole. Yeah. Let's preface this by... But let's say your dad beat you which is horrible. If you post that on on Facebook, you're being vulnerable, but no one's going to say that's a bad idea. No one's going to say you suck. No one's going to say, haha, you deserve it. No one's going to say it. So there's no like level of actual vulnerability in the context of how are people going to perceive what I say. And so instead, what I always recommend, and I'm going to totally take credit for this, my buddy John Romanello, New York Times bestseller, his Facebook blew up in the last year because he started spouting his opinions and thoughts. He spouts what's in his head. And so he goes like, I think this is the greatest move here. Also I think very this... strong opinions, right? Exactly, yeah. right? But it's one of those things where you, you also are honest that this is my opinion. It doesn't mean it's the universal truth. It doesn't mean that this is fact-based, especially with me, with examine.com, all being fact-based and stuff. Like, it's that level of, this is my opinion. This is what I believe in. I'm open to having a conversation about it, but I will dig down. You can also dig down. And so it's that. Like, people have these opinions. They just never put it out there. And if they do, then like I said, most people just backpedal, right? If someone's like disagree, they're like, oh, no, no, I made a mistake. Where I'm just, I just make fun of them. That's always And mine. I think they're, I think they're almost afraid to make a strong statement like that because they think like that has to be their opinion forever. When actually a year later, you've grown as a person, you can have a different opinion. That's okay. It's almost like we're trying so hard to be cool that you become uncool. And you right? forget, yeah, you don't know yourself at all. Yeah, you're just, you're this weird character. To me, if you're not the same online as offline, you are hashtag failure right there. <laughs> and I don't use hashtags hashtag a lot, so that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a serious <laughs> yeah. thing right there. But it's one of those things, like, it always boggles my mind when people meet me and they're like, oh, you're the same online. Or you're the same offline. I'm like, why the hell would I be? Like, what were you expecting that I'm suddenly something else? So I think that's a big part, right? Like, every time I see people just po- posting motivational quotes, I'm like, is that what you're like in real life? Like, right. if we hang out, are you going to be like, be the B you want to be? I'm like, get away. I don't want to hang out with you. You're boring. So I think it's that, right? Like you should just let your offline persona go into your online, whatever it is. You may be really serious. That's fine. You may be really funny. 
Incidentally, most people think they're funny when they're not, which is an unfortunate <laughs> reality. Even like, yeah, like again, talking about Romanello, he posted the other day saying, you know, if you're going to write F asterisk CK, like people yeah, are going to put that. the word fuck in your head anyway. Right, exactly. What are you doing? And so I saw that. And, and Roman and I are, are good friends. So I set a reminder and I posted yesterday where the reminder was count how many people actually used F asterisk CK <laughs> to pretend to be funny. And I was like, my over under was 10. I think there was like seven. So like your audience delivered. But it was just one of those things, right? Where people, you should just be yourself. If you're not funny. <laughs> Don't be funny. Yeah, Don't let try it go. to be funny. Let it go. Yeah. Just to transition kind of, that was, we, we went off on a little riff <laughs> oh, yeah, there. Totally. Absolutely. <laughs> but to get back kind of into the subject, what's been, the most painful part of being an entrepreneur to you because uh, i mean been the most painful part of being i an think you're pretty laid back you know which which is good but uh-huh. obviously you've been through tough times what's been the not, not even necessarily the toughest time per se but just kind of what's been the most painful like in your gut i think the most painful originally was the inability to have a conversation about what i was experiencing with other people especially when we were talking about the Valley and, and New York versus Toronto and all that jazz. I've worked really hard to build up a personal network here in Toronto of entrepreneurs where I can say, man, my employee is annoying me and I want to punch him in the face. And I say this with love and affection. Normally, I would never say that. And I love that person. I don't want them, them, I'm not saying he or she, to go anywhere. <laughs> but sometimes you need to be able to rant. And my woman, as amazing as she is, she doesn't understand that. And it's not that she doesn't want her, but it's the same thing, right? When she talks about office politics and she's like, yeah, I don't know why this person is doing this. I'm like, fuck her, fire her. <laughs> she's yeah. like, I can't do yeah, that. Like, yeah, yeah. I can't just be like, get lost. I can't be like, go away. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, that's true. So it's, it's, that, it's that level of empathy that can sometimes be a little bit isolating. And so one of the things is, you know, it's really trendy again to be a digital nomad or be internet and all that kind of stuff, which is nice. But I think being having friends in your local area that you can talk about this stuff that are at the same level, maybe a little bit higher, maybe a little bit lower. I mean, if someone's got like a thousand employees, they can't complain to me about like, oh man, I can't influence my hundred employees. I'm like, yeah, man, that sucks. <laughs> I get that. Yeah, yeah, man. Geez. Imagine if you had 1% of that. I'm like, oh yeah. Man. It was, it's that, right? Not having a peer group was kind of sucky. We all love to complain. We all love to whine, but we want to whine to someone who understands, who's not like, who's not trying to solve your problem, who's just like, yeah, that sucks. I know what that's like. And you're like, cool. So how have, how have you dealt with that? Yeah. So over the last few years, I've built a personal network. Guys like Dev right here, UJ, Five Minute Journal. I've, at my favorite cookie place over the last, I would say four years, I've met maybe 250 entrepreneurs there now. Some I've immediately clicked with. Some I haven't. Some I'm just like, dear God, I'm never going to hang out with you ever again. And I haven't. And I'm proud of that fact. But it's, it's just one of those things where you have to go out and put yourself out there in a way. And I've developed a, I'm not developed, but I'm relatively good at like, people are terrible, and this is maybe another tangent, but people are terrible at cold networking. They're terrible at reaching out to somebody and showing them why they should want to hang out. So as a real life example, this guy contacted me and he's like, hey man, I love your SJO. I've been a subscriber for a while. I love to pick your brain. I'm in Toronto. And normally I ignore those. I pick your brain is the worst thing. If you're listening to this, do not use the word phrase. <laughs> I think pick I've, your brain. I, think I heard you like put this in a post a long time ago. I've never, sure. I've never said it again. For sure. <laughs> Unless you're like, it's a good friend, then pick yeah, your brain, whatever, yeah. right? I was like 7 p.m. and I was just on my laptop because I was waiting for my woman to get home. So I wrote him like the scathing reply. I'm like, look, don't take this personally, but... And then I just went off on him. I'm like, this was wrong. Look what you're thinking, blah, 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 blah. And he apologized and he replied. And this dude is far more successful than I am. 
But he made, like, I didn't have the energy to research who the hell he was. And so it was that, right? When I reach out to people, I'm not just like, hey, man, let's pick your brain. I'm like, hey, I'm Saul, and this is what I've done. And it's not just this is what I've done professionally. This is what I've done non-professionally. I've, I make giant chocolate bars, and I've done these weird food-offs and whatever. By the way, you know, I really, and then I do something. Like, he said he was on SGO. That's great, but he could have easily referred to a specific instance. He could have said, I joined because of this, or I remember this article. So I always make a specific reference. And then, to me, I always say, I'm going to bribe. I want to bribe you with the best chocolate chip cookies in Toronto. Now imagine I want to bribe you with the best chocolate chip cookies in Toronto versus let's grab lunch or let's grab a coffee. It's so much more interesting. It's so much more unique to me, right? And event and if they go away cookies, then there's a whole different conversation there, right? So it's that. So I just did a lot of outreach. I've met a lot of interesting humans. Fridays, I just basically hang out at that coffee shop and just meet with interesting people. And so every I Friday? built this every Friday. That's I awesome. either read in between people coming over or I'm just hanging out with people. But and it's not like an official like meetup or is it no it's not an official meetup but basically what i'll say is like hey i'll meet you at one o'clock and i'll tell maybe dev i'm like yo come at 145 so what i try to do is i also overlap them so at least you'll get to meet another person so not just me so there's that value in three and then the conversation is always more interesting to me when there's three people someone goes in this weird tangent and they go with it and you're like well i didn't even and didn't even anticipate we go there right so i like having like a little bit of overlap and when no one's there then i'm just reading who's had let's go here just for somebody sitting at home right now uh-huh. or listening to this in the gym or in the car, somebody that doesn't have, they're not surrounded by people with that kind of growth mindset. 100%. What would you recommend for them? Like how to reach out to people? Well, or? let's just say they don't have anybody in their life that kind of has the same mindset, right? Uh-huh. Dude, this is what Twitter and Facebook and social media is for, right? Like you can find, unless you're in the middle of nowhere, at which point that's a different problem. But even in Toronto, like it wasn't that I knew all these people beforehand, right? You, I was like, okay. Where can I find information on people in Toronto? So there's a, a website called Beta Kit. It's kind of like TechCrunch for Toronto, sorry, Canada, and it's based in Toronto. So I'm like, okay, I'll start following that. And then they mentioned local Toronto entrepreneurs. I'm like, okay, I'll see if I'm interested in them. And the other thing is also, if for every like four people I do look at, I maybe contact one. The other three, I know we're not going to get along with. So I'm big on that, that when I reach out to these people, I'm doing it from a position where I'm like, I'm excited to talk. Like even today, I randomly ran across an article in the Globe and Mail, which is newspaper here, about how antioxidants don't solve anything or that they're overrated. And I'm like, this is awesome. And I looked up the woman was in Toronto. And so when I sent her an email, I could almost like reading it, I could almost feel my own excitement being, that was awesome. It wasn't, it was no nonsense. And fitness and health is full of garbage and you're in Toronto and I'm like we should be BFFs and it comes naturally to me to say that right so it's that like she may not respond she may not but it's that kind of like when you read the email you're like obviously this person isn't doing this as a templated email he legitimately means that he mentioned Toronto he mentioned Global Mail he mentioned how he's in for Global Mail blah 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 right so outreach is not that hard just you, have to, you have to actually care. You have to care. And it's and the other thing is, is like there's so much garbage out there. There's so many garbage emails you're getting that a, a modicum of effort immediately makes you much better than everyone else around. And suddenly you're like, oh, okay, I, I want to talk to this person. I want to have a conversation. So, yeah. I know Jason. Jason's a big fan of obviously. I mean, he does. He's very high touch, personalizes everything. 100%. He's really good at like video outreach, right? 100%. Which is another great way to kind of cut through the noise of all the Absolutely. templated crappy emails people get. So, the one thing I don't agree with Jason, this one little tweak oh, yeah. is. See, this is the polarizing stuff I like. <laughs> I personally hate video. Yeah. I don't watch YouTube. Sure. I, I hate videos. So the only time I ever use video is when I've established the relationship and then. So for example, when I did my, uh, I did a cookie off in January, we had 27 bakers show up. I knew, I think four of them before. And so after the event, I then sent them a video. 
And they all loved it. Because now, like now if Jason sends me a video, I'm like, okay, I know this guy. I want to hear what he's saying. I want to, I want to see if Candace is in there yeah. or what's going on. Ava. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So, and Ava's always in there. I don't even have to <laughs> wonder about that. I'm just wondering where if Candace yeah. is going to be in there. But to me, video is once you've established a relationship. I personally wouldn't use it. With that said, a lot of Jason's introductions are high touch. They've already been introduced warmly. So when he does a video, they're open to it. But why do you not like it? Is it do you find it awkward? Do you find what well, like what's what's the actual reason? I think it's in terms of time usage. Like okay. a three Takes minute video, yeah. A three minute video can be condensed into thirty seconds of text. Right? And so if it's a first initial email to me, and I, I, I could be the minority, I, I won't deny that, but I'm, I will roll my eyes. I'm like, oh, this person wants me to see a 30-minute video, uh, or a three-minute video, are you kidding? Like, people send me Facebook messages on audio, I'm like, ugh, they, they actually expect me to listen to this, because like, <laughs> there's like a first five seconds of static, right. and the last 10 seconds, they don't know how to end the message, and then they're just kind of droning on, I'm like, oh. and I, I'm, again, I'm no better, which is sure. why I don't do it. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm even ratchet about, like, this yeah. send me audio message, send me text. So, that's the one thing I disagree, just on the initial messages. After Afterwards, then video is key. Then video sets you apart. That's when you're like, okay, this person's cool. So with text, I mean, that's what I, I feel like that's what the majority does mm-hmm. is text. Mm-hmm. So how can you actually, I'm sure you get a lot of emails. So mm-hmm. people like if you get random emails from people mm-hmm. wanting to reach out for advice, business advice, whatever it is, what are the ones that actually stand out that make you open it? One and two, actually engage and respond. Honestly, again, it goes back to specific references about them or about our budding relationship, right? So if I was to email Jason, I wouldn't just be like, hey man, I saw Mastermind Talks, I think it's awesome. I'd be like, hey man, you know, let's say in this case, I know UJ, right? Our mutual friends, I'm like, hey man, I love UJ in the five minute journal. I know that a big reason why he got started was because of you, so that's really cool. Now he already knows, oh, I know who I am. The other thing that's my secret weapon that I've never seen anyone else do is I tweet at them. It's so easy. Most people are on Twitter. I will see, though, if they actually ever reply to anybody. And I will just reply to their latest few tweets if it makes sense. If I have anything relevant to add, I will. So as a real example, a lot of journalists are relatively anti-Trump. And I'm not one to be shy about my political feelings or beliefs, whatever word you want to use. And so when Trump's EO came out, Canadians, even though we have a special relationship with the States, for the first 24 hours, we were also caught up in the, if you're Somalian-born or whatever, you will not be allowed in. And so Vice Magazine wrote an article about companies that are standing up for it, and we were one of them. We were one of the first ones to be like, listen, we don't agree with this because we are evidence-based and there's no evidence behind this, and we are a very diverse organization, both ethnicity-wise and gender-wise. And so when this journalist was tweeting about it, and I tweeted at her saying, hey, I just want to say thank you. It's a near and dear cause to us, and it's good to see when journalists are also doing it. When I emailed her, she wasn't like, who the hell is this random guy? She's like, this guy is cool. And it wasn't from, a, again, a, a place of inauthenticity. It was from a real spot. And so actually, when we had a conversation, I actually linked her to the Vice thing, and she even liked us even more for that. So it's that thing. And then it goes back to my one out of four, which is the thing people usually miss out on. I don't contact those three other people because I know we're not going to get along, or I know that I don't have enough on them, or do a, I don't even care enough about their writing. Like even Roman, right? if I was to email Romanella today, I would rave about his writing. I would rave about it. Like when one of the emails he's mentioned that he remembers was he used the word splendid in his in, in one of his articles, and I wrote it. And I'm like, dude, I can't believe you used the word splendid. That's amazing. <laughs> And he remembers this and he That's mentions awesome. this. It's that. It's yeah. these little, little things. Like when people t- mention to me like, oh man, you know, I never thought about using this word. I'm like, giddy up. When someone was like, yeah, I didn't know terribleness is an actual word. I'm like, okay, see, now we're having a conversation. So it's it's that kind of stuff. Got it. So just 
paying attention to the details and yeah, referencing them, it, right? It, this is not a shotgun approach. This is a rifle approach. You Precision, gotta do right? One by t- yeah, you got to do one by one. It takes a long time. But in the, like people, like, especially because I used to be in the SEO world, right? They asked me like, oh man, how do you get in Men's Health or BBC or New York Times? And I'm like, yo, I built these relationships over years. I've known New York Times editors for now. The first one I met was four years ago, right? Like we have that relationship where I can be like, yo, what's going on? And he'll reply. We can talk about NBA. We can talk about this. And this is why him and I get along well is because he's and the reason I got good friends with the editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine is because he's a huge NBA fan. He's a Miami Heat fan. And as the Miami Heat, for those who don't know, Miami started off really bad and they're the most improbable turnaround and now they're about they're in the playoffs. We would have a conversation about that. Right? So it, it's that kind of stuff. Like maybe I won't get along with the EIC of business insider. That's okay. I will survive. So I think it's that. People want to be friends with everybody. They want to be cool with everybody. But you just need a few cool people that you get along with really well, and it will just work out really well for everyone. Got it. No, that's that's good. So trying to transition back just a little bit. We keep, I know we keep, yeah, no <laughs> we keep going off, but you start you start talking, and then just, things just yeah, things on. make me go. Oh, my like, bad. No, it's not, it's not bad at all, but you, you say interesting stuff, and I go down the rabbit hole with you. Just to kind of get it back. So fail on the mantra we live by here with the idea being that if you're not failing, you're not growing. Mm-hmm. How do you kind of in, in a day-to-day get yourself outside of your comfort zone? Purely on like personal stuff. So for example, I was or I have a terrible singing voice. Twice took singing classes. I'm still terrible at singing. Terrible at dancing, but I've always wanted to do tango, especially because I live in Argentina. So I took dance classes. I've now gone from terrible to just god awful. So a lot of my my a lot of people think personal development comes to like business books or marketing books. To me, personal development is more how do I become more interesting, right? If you were into scuba diving, we can have a conversation about scuba diving. If you're into X Y, if you're into gardening, we can have a conversation about gardening. We have a flat. We can go into the history of LCD panels and how that. That to me is my failure. Where I go into areas I, like I talked about. How do you define a hole? It's the most bizarro thing, but this is my feeling is, okay, I don't know about this, but I want to learn about it. Or I'm very uncomfortable with this one action, be it dancing, I've done archery, I've done I've done so many different kinds of classes. I did rally racing with Jason last year, and like I think it was 12 other people. And I was the one in the automatic car because I didn't know how to learn drive stick. That annoyed me. Then we were in Kosovo, and we couldn't drive to Western Greece because I didn't know how to drive. So I got super annoyed, so I learned how to drive stick. So it's, it's that. It's more on the... The personal side, then I need to develop this in a business side. No, that's cool. And I think you said you wanted to, like, your focus is getting better at writing this year, right? Yeah. So, kind of along those lines, to be able to tell extraordinary stories, you have to live an extraordinary life. So, you have that experience so you can relate it back into the writing. And Absolutely. There's, I'm reading, well, I read anyway a lot, but I'm reading. I asked Roman Ella, for example, what are good books on writing? So he gave me some recommendations. So I'm reading those. So it's it's that. Like, what are they by? I don't know off the top of my head. He gave me <laughs> on this, the spot. I know. Oh my god! He had like 17 books. I'm like, <laughs> I'm gonna get like three, and then we'll progress. Yeah. I think one is the Art of Style or Writing by Pinkler, Steve Pinkler, something like that. There's maybe uh, Pressfield, huh? Steve Pressfield. I don't. I'm not. I'm not gonna say yes or no because yeah, yeah, I yeah. literally don't All know. Good. I will embrace when I don't know. Sure. <laughs> but it's those things, right? Like it's uncomfortable. Like. People say you're only writing twice a month. I'm like, man, I don't want to shoot you. Are you kidding me? It's exhausting. <laughs> Editing right. is exhausting. Writing for me is draining. Like I need an hour break after I write and I write for like an hour and then I'm just like, I'm done. And maybe I'll get better. Maybe I'm being a baby. I don't know. But I reached the independence to be a baby if I want. So I've earned it. But yeah, that's kind of how I, how I make that stuff happen. What's failure mean to you? Oof. In a personal way, failure to me is giving up before I should give up. 
there are things I will not be good at. Singing, for example. Singing teacher said, my buddy and I were the worst <laughs> pupils she ever had. I don't oh. know if it was just we were legitimately bad or also because we were, you know, dumbasses. So that's not a failure to me. But, for example, if I give up on dancing right now, that would be considered a failure to me. Why? Because you know that you have more that to give? I'm getting better. Okay. That I've invested, so I've bought Latin dancing shoes. I have a one and a half, one and oh, a you're all half in. inch heel you're all like in. the soft leather <laughs> so it doesn't stick to the ground. Absolutely, yeah, right? Yeah. So to me, that would be a failure. And honestly, the biggest thing for failure, and, and it goes back to the immigrant thing, is not embracing everything I can do here. And it sounds maybe a little bit hokey pokey and all that kind of stuff, but all my relatives are in Pakistan and India. They are smarter than I am. They work harder than I am. They're far more, let's say, savvy than I am. Yet I am maybe a thousand times more financially successful than they. There's nothing special about me per se, other than the fact that I was born to the right set of humans that moved to the West. And for me to not be able to take this opportunity to do ridiculous things, to have fun, to enjoy, to learn, that's just irresponsible is is how I would perceive it as. So yeah. That's, that's fair. If somebody came to you, let's say a friend, right? That's not necessarily an entrepreneur, but you see a lot of potential in them and they, they're starting to express that. They're wanting to see it come out and they're wanting to maybe start a business, but they don't know where to start. What's one, I like Derek Sivers' questions. He has right. all these directives, right? Yeah, yeah, What's yeah. one directive or action item that you would give to that person as a step one to get started? Going back to what I said about frustrations, I'd have them catalog their frustrations for a month. Every time they're annoyed by it. So I normally have a notebook on me. I don't have one right now because I'm in agreement with my woman that she buys me notebooks and she <laughs> owes me a notebook thus and I refuse to buy one until she gets me one. This is how I am. Yep. But I would get them a notebook and be like, write down every single frustration you experience. And if they do it, then they're obviously committed to solving a problem. And if they don't, then they're not. Especially if they do it for a month. Exactly. And you'll find a lot of random things over the course of a month. It could be something as like one of my favorite latest purchases is a waterproof notebook that's in my shower. I love it. I'm taking a hot shower. I get a crazy idea and I write it down. And I don't, I think it was maybe like 20 or 30 bucks. I would have gladly paid a hundred bucks for that bad boy. And maybe that'll be the, the, you know, the frustration that'll happen this one time where like I had a great idea, but it was in the shower and I couldn't write it down. Maybe I should do something like that. That's where all the great ideas come too. For sure, man. When you have downtime, <laughs> that's where we have the exactly. three shower thoughts because you finally have some downtime to actually mull over things. Yeah. If you had to name one person who's had the absolute most profound impact on your life. Are we talking about like on a personal level or in like a business way? Sure. Sure. Uh, <laughs> all right. If I was to go on a business level, actually, I think I would choose Derek Sivers. He has set his own rules and he's done what he wants. So, for example, until beginning of this year, he answered all the emails. Like any question you'd ask him, he'd answer. And at the beginning of this year, he's like, I'm done with it. I'm no longer answering questions. That's awesome. Like most people are so scared of changing their personality. So, for example, I have this bizarro thing called cookie life where basically people send me cookies. So, for the last 13 months, I've had like 133 people now send me cookies. How are you not super fat? I just share with everybody. This is why I have so many friends in this world now because I just share. But I'm shutting it down. And people are like, why would you shut down? It's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm bored of it. They're like, yeah, but you're getting so many cookies. It's just in like, so I was just in, I wrote originally for Men's Health about it. I was just in the Independent and I was just in the Sydney Morning Herald. This is all in the last two weeks. And now more more and more people are like reaching out or journalists like, oh, we want to write about this story. Like, oh, there's so much potential. You could do this. You could do this. I'm like, sure, but why don't you do it? I'm done with it. (laughs) I have had my fun. It was always meant to be a lark, right? Can I get one person, five, 10, whatever. So I think that's a big thing he's done where he's got bored of it and he's like, I'll move on to the next thing. And he's like, I don't need to know what I'm exactly doing. I don't have to have a grand plan to it. There'd be that. And on a personal level, it would likely be my father. 
almost going to sound like me and that I'm throwing him under the bridge, but he's a brilliant man, but he's like the most, I don't want to use the word miserable, but he's he was so heavily involved in his work that his social life, like he's great with my mom, but that's it. His social life is non-existent. And so for me, it was a big deal to work hard whenever I could, get the gumption for it, but also find that balance between work and not work. Was it just because he was not a social guy or he just didn't? Both. So okay. he was not a social guy. And he loved his work. And as I mentioned earlier, I was a fat shy nerd. I was never good with people. It wasn't like I was born with an ability to have a conversation. It was something incredibly uncomfortable. You know, if you were to actually go back and say, what is the one best thing I developed is the ability to have a conversation. You know, people are like, even people talk about like, oh, small talk is so boring. Small talk is basically you starting to figure out what the other person wants to talk about or what they're interested in. If you are a good talker, you love small talk because you have 19 different things from a little bit of small talk right. to jump into. Exactly. Right? And if you aren't good at conversations, then small talk is just small talk. It's just perfunctory. So just seeing my dad, I was like, you know when you're just like, I'm not going to be like my dad. I've <laughs> lived that to the extreme. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you're shutting down Cookie Life, which, sorry for all those cookie lovers out mm -hmm. there. You guys can take it over for them. Absolutely. What is on the horizon for you that has you most excited? Nothing per se. I got to be honest. I am doing so. I made <laughs> the cookie lie. Well, I'm, I'm a relatively non-excitable like, person. Yeah, you seem very like stoic. I don't, yeah, I don't get very like, things happen, they don't happen. I'm, I'm not like, okay, there's a stoic of like, oh, things happen, whatever. I'm not necessarily like that. I'm more just like, meh, like it'll happen, it won't happen. Things come together, they don't come together. But What gets you really excited though? So the one something. thing I am kind of excited about. Kind of, not even, not is, even fully. Is the intersection of, well, I mean, okay, I'll, I'll explain this. The intersection of entrepreneurship with networking, with food, and with philanthropy. A lot of entrepreneurs to them, philanthropy is I'm going to sell $50 million and then I'm going to now start cutting checks for 100000 but entrepreneurs like you and I, we can afford to give a thousand a month. We can afford to give five thousand a year. We don't really like that's not going to dent. So, so I do these weird food offs. And so earlier this year, I did a chocolate chip cookie off. Right, I mentioned we had twenty seven pros showed up. We had one hundred forty people show up. And we were able able to raise two thousand five hundred dollars for a local food sustainable charity. And I'm like, that's awesome. But then I was like, ooh, what can we do even crazier? And this is where I'm completely selfish. I suggested this to other people. They thought it was a terrible idea, but I was like, I don't care about you. And so <laughs> in end of June, I think I mentioned this to you, I'm doing a sausage party, which is a sausage food off. Sausage fest. Exactly. 100%. <laughs> And I think Sausage Party, I think, is the final name we settle on because there's all these, you know, obvious permutations. But I think we already have 64, 65 tickets sold. It's awesome. 100 bucks a ticket. I want to hit 100 tickets. So we raised 10,000. So I was a little bit more excited earlier when it was a challenge. When I was like, am I going to get 100 tickets? Can I get that? Because my thought process was stealing what Jason does. I will use my reputation to sell 50 tickets and then I'll go after the sausage makers. But I know enough restaurants and chefs now that I started kind of reaching out to the ones I knew. So a few years ago, there used to be a now defunct Sausage League. And the guy who always kicked ass, Jesse Valens, for example, is coming to my sausage party. The number one and number two butchers in Toronto are coming to the sausage. Well-known chefs are coming. So I may be a little bit less excited because the challenge of it is gone. I'm not going to sound, it's going to sound completely almost oblivious. But now that I you know don't up the goal some a little of bit, the, though? to me, it's like, okay, I've upped it this time. Next time we'll do sure, something else. Sure. Next time we'll next go, year, we'll get sponsors or this or this or this, right? To me, it's always like, okay, I've upped it once. I'm not going to change it on the fly. But even still, that's amazing. 100 tickets, 100 bucks a piece, 10,000. Yes. That's yes. awesome. It's, it's one of those things. But it's it also like reaffirms building relationships, right? I can I literally just went to people and I said, hey, man, I'm doing this, $100 a ticket. I think two people said $100 and I just said, 
And they're like, I don't know if I want to do this. And I just said, okay, <laughs> you don't have to. Take care. <laughs> right. Like, no one's forcing you to do it. I personally think it's worth $100, not for the food alone, even though the food alone will be worth it, but all the humans that will be there, all the, the knowledge and savvy that will be there. Beyond that, then there's all the journalists that will be there and all the chefs and all that. So yeah, I was really excited about that. Not to that. mention the cause, right? Exactly. Exactly. Right. That's kind of like brings it in. And so actually what's happening is 100% of that is going to the charity. I'm covering all the costs. And to me, it's like, it'll be like two $2,500. It's, it, let's say it's 2000 That's a five extra turn on my initial 2000 And now we suddenly got 10000 And now we have more people thinking about charity. And we have all these chefs who got to make these sausages. And I got to eat all these sausages and be like, I'm the king of the sausage party. So, <laughs> and, and this is just almost year one, right? Who knows what it could go to? So it's no it kind of ties idea. back into the idea of like, don't be paralyzed by getting started. Just start something. Yeah, 100%. Even though this isn't like your business per se. Not but at all. it's a project, right? So you're getting it started. And then who knows what it could turn into down the road. Like my cookie off was just because I was original cookie off was me shit talking between three people. And I was like, <laughs> we'll do a blind taste test. Yeah. That happened. The cookie life which is people sending me cookies all happened because I posted a picture and people started saying I can make better cookies. And I said, okay, send it to me. And most people would have never said that, right? Most people would be like, okay, cool. <laughs> One day we'll see. I was like, all right, no, after that, show me now, <laughs> right? And so it's that. It's like there's no loss in asking. Obviously, there's a time when you don't ask something. When you, you, know, you don't ever want to put people in a spot. Like I was giving a talk at Toronto City Hall and some guy's like, my fiance is coming on Friday. We should go for cookies. And I was like, first of all, in my head, I was like, why would I care your fiance is coming? Like, I don't want to sound like a jerk, but what does your fiance have anything <laughs> to, to do, do with, with anything? Right. Has to do with anything. I don't know who your fiance is. You didn't mention who your fiance is. Maybe she's like the superstar. I don't know. And two, he put me on the spot, right? He put me in an unfortunate position where saying no is not as easy. So my big thing is always go for the ask but in a position where they can easily say no and there's no hard feelings. And they should know that they can say no. Don't put them in a corner. Absolutely. That's a better way of saying it. I'll say it like that. Don't don't put them in a corner. Excellent. <laughs> Write that down, man. Damn straight. Oh, it's stuck in there now. All right, cool. So we've been running a while now, so I want to respect your time. But yeah, that's the beautiful part about this conversation is that you, you have the time to do this, right? Yes. It, it flows naturally. I do actually have, I think, a call soon. Someone wants to, well, I mean, call... Someone wants to come record the sausage party okay, and, and the experience of it, which is a commitment, but it's one of those where I'm like, okay, I don't need to stress out about Just it. Relax. There's no, yeah, there's no do or die, right? If they say no, that's okay. Or if I say no, actually, it's okay. If <laughs> sure. we make this happen, that's okay too. But yeah, it keeps life interesting. Cool, man. Well, Thank you so much for sitting down today and taking the time to record. Dude, my pleasure. This is, this is, I got to just basically babble on for an hour. So this is, I, absolutely, I should be thanking you for listening to me to just go on and on. No, you got to have somebody to vent to. Oh, that's right. That's <laughs> no, right. but I really like doing these in person over... I'm sure you do a lot of podcasts. and yeah. I'm assuming most are over Skype and yeah. audio yeah. only. So I think you know us both sitting on a couch is... Oh, it's lot. way different. It's way different. You know, it's more of a conversation. 100%. It's more natural. But until next time, we'll catch you later. Have a good one. See ya. All right. You can find Saul at sjo.com where he shares all of his unfiltered views on business, fitness, and networking. He's at Saul underscore Orwell on Twitter. That's at Saul underscore Orwell. And, of course, all the links and resources Saul and I discussed, including more information on his latest projects and ventures, can be found at the page created specifically for this episode. You'll find it all at failon.com slash 005. As I continue to build this project with the simple goal of getting people to take action through embracing failure, if you could do one thing to support my cause, I'd sincerely appreciate it. 
Simply by submitting a rating and review, this will help the podcast become visible to more people. If you feel it deserves a five-star rating and you leave a review, I'll be sure to mention you by name in an upcoming episode as a simple, small way to say thank you. To rate and review the podcast, super easy. Just visit failon.com slash iTunes or failon.com slash Stitcher. Until next time, see ya. That's all for this episode of the Fail On Podcast. For more resources, show notes, and action items to help you find success in your failures, sign up for our mailing list at failon.com. For more actionable inspiration, we'll catch you next time right here on the Fail On Podcast.